think there's anything else. Okay, let me pray. We'll get started tonight. Oh, Father, uh, thank you for your unfailing love toward us. Uh, your rich, rich mercy. Your, the protection of your name um, over us. The peace we enjoy now because of the finished work of Jesus. Uh, the power that you exert uh, on our behalf and almost always we never even know all those things that you're doing for our benefit. Uh, we want to tell you uh, tonight, thank you. Uh, we love your amazing grace toward us. We rest in it. Uh, we live in it. And pray that uh, this evening uh, you would cause us to uh, continue to fall more deeply in love with you, uh, more passionate about our walk with you, all of those things that are produced by the work of your spirit and your word. And so tonight we pray that both would be active in our lives. We love you and we ask you for these things this evening, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. One of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress. And I have the version... Um, Written in 17, no, not really. I, it's the sort of the old English version. Yeah, so I, and it's, an, it's a paperback. It's not worth anything except for what I've written in it. Uh, anyway, I just enjoy Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's hard. I try to read it once a year. I, it's been a couple of years, but I try to read it. And it's just a fabulous fabulous story packed with scripture and truth that if you'll read it, I pro and depending, there's a more modern version uh, that might be a tad easier to read, but I, I just commend Pilgrim's Progress to you. If you've never read it, you should read it. So, I think I've read this to you before, but this is one of the parts that I love so much, and you're going to see why, I think. Uh, this is the section, Christian, of course, he becomes a Christian, and he's now on a journey. And he's on a journey to the celestial city, which is heaven. So he's on this journey, and he meets various um, characters along the way. And the one that he's going to meet in, uh, in the story right now is Apollyon. And I know I've read this to you before, so uh, just... Listen to it again. Uh, he says, But now, in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground, for thought he... Had I no more in mine eye than saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke. His mouth was the mouth of a lion. When he came up to Christian... He beheld him with a disdainful countenance and thus began to question with him. And so he starts this dialogue. And finally, Apollyon gets to his point and he is going to call Christian out, basically. So Apollyon says about Christian, Thou didst faint at first setting out when thou was almost choked in the slew of despond. 
Thou didst attempt wrong ways to be rid of thy burden, whereas thou should have stayed till thy prince had taken it off. Thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice things. Thou wast also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when thou talkest of thy journey and of what thou hast seen and heard, thou art inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that thou sayest or doest. And Christian says, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in and have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. Apollyon, in a grievous rage, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. The Christian says, Apollyon, be aware, beware of what you do. For I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. Apollyon, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal din that thou shalt go no farther. Here will I spill thy soul. And so now they start wrestling, and Apollyon begins winning. Uh, and with that, he, had, he strikes Christian. With that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. With that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his, his dragon's wings and sped him away, that Christian saw him no more. James 4, 7. A great little story of... Christian fighting a humongous, awful, bad demon. Uh, Apollyon knows Christian's past. He knows his failures. He knows his weaknesses. He accuses him of all these things. He's straddling the way so Christian can't go forward. He's either going to have to turn around and run away or he's going to have to fight him. Christian understands that his king had to face a similar giant called death. And his king went through death rather than backed up from it or tried to go around it. And Christian knows, as was true of my king, so will be true of me. And Christian presses in to Apollyon. He steps in, he engages it, and he uses the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to do his fighting. Well, great story. This is the bottom line for tonight. It's appropriate for God's king to go through a giant rather than to avoid him. And tonight we're going to be seeing the contrast between Saul, the people's king, and David, God's king. And we're going to watch David take on the giant, and Saul, not so much. So tonight, it's appropriate for God's king to go through a giant rather than to avoid him. 
We're in 1 Samuel. This is the discussion. This is the, the part of the book on the monarchy. The people have asked for a king just by way of review. It's a time of transition in Israel from no king when we did the book of Judges to give us our king, and that's Saul, to God's king, and that's David. Israel has her heart set on having a king because she mistakenly believes her oppression by other nations is due to having no king and no army rather than her own unbelief and disobedience. And so, God gives them what they ask for. He gives them Saul. As we looked at last week, sometimes when we set our hearts on things that we shouldn't have, God says, Burger King. Have it your way. And he gives us what we ask for to remind us to trust him instead of ourselves and how we walk. Sometimes we think we know what we want or need. Most often, God knows best. I'd say all the time, he knows what's best. He wants us to ask him and to wait for it. Sometimes we get impatient and he gives us then what we ask for. That's what he did with Israel. He gave them what they asked for. They asked for Saul. And he said, have it your way. Here's Saul. Let me know what you think about that. And he did that to discipline them, to get them to remind themselves that, Israel, I have your best interests at heart, so let me provide a king for you. Don't you go seeking one out. Saul... Maybe 25 years on the throne, Saul's lack of faith, courage, and obedience finally disqualify him from office. And we, we saw some snippets of that last week. Uh, Saul will have 40 years altogether on the throne. And so if some of you history people, timeline people, you're starting to look at this saying, now wait a minute, 25 years, David comes on the scene. David gets anointed. Some of our next lessons, you're going to begin figuring out God asked David to wait at least 10 years from the time he was anointed to the time he became the king. And in those 10 years, Saul is chasing him around in the desert. So that's what's happening with Saul. Saul has disqualified himself David is coming behind him, and so God sets the people's choice, Saul, aside for someone better, his king. Remember in 15 verse 28, the author writes, um, okay, so in 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And that's the announcement that David is coming. Saul just can't be trusted to serve God fully and faithfully any longer, especially when circumstances get tough. I've called Saul from this point on, the fretful avoider. Now, he began well enough. He was chosen and anointed by God and Samuel, or he was anointed by Samuel, with God's permission, led Israel to some victories over her enemies. But fears and worries set in. And we saw some of those last week. In chapter 13, he neither possessed nor requested wisdom. In 14 and 15, he was more concerned with displeasing people than with disobeying God. In 15, he lied about and rationalized his disobedience. And then in 16, which I'm going to read, God removes his empowering spirit from him. So chapter 16, 
This is how the Lord, the Lord's going to begin by talking to Samuel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But say, oh, so I've had several questions like this last week and also before class today. Um, wait a minute, I thought David's already in Saul's house and he's playing the harp. You know, what? What? what what's happening here? Uh, the Western mind wants linear sequential. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. The Eastern mind, remember this is from an Eastern perspective, they're telling you a story. And so the story is, if I'm going down this road and Saul and he has these fits and David comes and plays the harp, it totally makes sense in the story. And then they're going to back up and go down another road and say, now let's talk about David. And they may rewind or something or other else. So I, I don't wish it were anything other than it was, because then it wouldn't be the Bible. So you kind of got to just go with it here. If you go, why does this seem to be out of order? It's only out of order to you. <laughs> See, the people who wrote it and first read it, they went, well, I totally get this. How many times have you told a story and you've gone down this road and then you back up and you go down this other road because you're just telling the story, right? And you don't, you don't stop and say, no, I'm going to rewind five years from where I was and I'm going to start down this road. No, you just get, you start telling the story and people go, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, okay, I get it, I'm tracking with you. It's, it's a story, it's a true story, but it's told as a story. I hope that brings a little bit of clarity to why is it not linear sequential? It wasn't supposed to be, okay? So with that explanation, let me continue. So, the, find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Okay, here's Bethlehem. Uh, Saul and Samuel, everyone knows, have it come to an end, right? It said Saul doesn't, or Samuel doesn't see Saul anymore. They've split. All of a sudden now, here's Samuel in Bethlehem, and he's got a flask of oil and a heifer. <laughs> you're, you're beginning to wonder what is going on, and if Samuel's here to do something that looks official, Saul's going to hear about it, and what's going to happen to Bethlehem? <coughs> Saul's going to come after him. So they are scared to death when they see Samuel because they know he's had this division from Saul. What are they probably thinking? Samuel's going to start a coup. So they're going, ah, Samuel, why are you here? And now you think, oh, man, does the Lord tell him to tell a lie? No. He says, take a heifer with you, make a sacrifice, and invite him. And that's, and that's what they did. So the Lord didn't tell him to lie. He just gave him the context to carry out his instructions. Now, the rest of this you've kind of heard in Sunday school class. Uh, the Lord uh, it says in verse 4, so Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? Do you come in peace? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not funny, but you go, oh, there's a, there's a reason why it's written this way. You are scared to death if you're in Bethlehem right now. Yes, Samuel replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel takes one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Like, Samuel, haven't you got the lesson yet? No. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. That's what Cody was talking about this morning. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so then he, he parades all the rest of the sons. No, 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 no. Uh, Lord, I'm out of sons. <laughs> well, ask the question, does he have any more? Oh, yeah, there's one more. But he's out in the fields. Okay, we're going to wait for him. He's actually the one who's doing the work of a shepherd right now. There's still the youngest. Okay, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So when David shows up. Um, some people think that maybe because he was ruddy, he had red hair. Maybe. I don't know. Don't make more of that maybe than there is. Maybe he was, had run in and he was ruddy. You know, he's sweating or something. He may not have had red hair. He may have. We don't know exactly. But whatever he was, he was the one with the heart that was truly inclined toward the Lord. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, that must have been comfortable. <laughs> Can you imagine that? If, you know, there's a whole bunch of brothers before you. No, 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 no. Yes, anoint him. Hmm? <laughs> Aren't I the oldest? Aren't I the tallest? Aren't I the most handsome? Yeah, 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 but this is God's choice right here. God doesn't, like Cody talked about this morning, God doesn't operate according to um, the world's standards or principles. It's totally different. So, as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Verse 14. Such a sad verse. Who, who's, uh, when has this happened before? Last book. Samson. This will be on the final. Remember the Spirit of the Lord left Samson? Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. And so now we're going to find out about the harp player. And so uh, one of Jesse's sons is, uh, he's in Bethlehem and he plays a good harp. And so he goes and he gets, um, went to, so David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much and David became his armor bearer. Uh, somebody said, now wait a minute, if he loved each other so much, you know, if, if Saul loved him so much, why does it say at the end of chapter 17, um, you know, um, Saul says, tell me about your father, Saul said, and David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Why wouldn't Saul know that? You all probably have children. Did you know all of your children's father's names? I'm going to guess no. <laughs> I did well enough just to keep track of the friend's name, let alone the friend's father's name. So you think, oh, okay, this could happen. Saul is a king. He's an important guy. And yes, he loved having David there and David playing the harp. It doesn't necessarily mean he remembered the name of his father. So don't go, oh, see, there's more mistakes in the Bible. No, there's not. There's explanations for all of these things that are reasonable and plausible and that we do uh, that I think make complete sense. So anyway, so Saul is served by David and becomes his armor bearer. And then Saul sends word to Jesse saying, let him stay here. And every time the tormenting spirit would come, David would play the harp. Saul would feel better and the tormenting spirit would go away. Okay. So God removes his empowering spirit from Saul. So we're going to take a little aside for just a second. Uh, this, remember, he, this wasn't um, God going the first time um, Saul made a mistake. God goes, yoink, and takes the spirit. This is over two decades. 
This is not a one or two time event that God decides to remove his spirit from Saul. This is a pattern in Saul's life of self-reliance. And finally, the Lord says, I'm taking my spirit from you in the same way that he took him from Samson. Okay. So let's talk for just a second about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. God took his spirit from Saul. Now, this is probably not an in, indicative of Saul's status, meaning his salvation. The Holy Spirit came and went in the Old Testament. That's why what we have now is such an unbelievable New Testament blessing. They didn't have this in the Old Testament. That's why David, remember, he's, David's been a bad boy, and he's praying to God, and what does he ask him? Don't take your spirit from me. And we sing that sometimes, not, not really on Sunday morning, but sometimes we'll sing that song. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Don't sing that. That can't happen to you or to me. God will not take his spirit from us. We're not Old Testament people. We're New Testament people, and the spirit lives within and does not leave. In the Old Testament, different story. The spirit came to empower, and then he left. Will we see Saul in heaven? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Maybe. I don't know. It's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation. Okay. So it's probably taking the Holy Spirit from Saul is probably not indicative of his status. It is, however, a clear sign of God's removal of empowerment he can't, Saul, can't do the job that God has given to him without the Holy Spirit. It can't be done. Saul doesn't know the Spirit is gone, and he's going to continue to try to do the job. Rather than um, repent, fall on his face, and ask God, oh, please, 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 you know, let's, can we revisit this? Saul just seems to be oblivious to the whole thing. So, God took his spirit from Paul. What about today? We can, we, Christians, New Testament, we can quench the spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Things that are not done. Things we know to do that are not done. We can quench the Holy Spirit. He won't leave us. But we can quench him, like, kind of like a fire. You know, we can take him from a flame down to a, a little match. We can grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, by the things we do. So these are the things that are done. So there's a not done part and there's a done part. That's what the not done and the is done means. We don't lose our status, salvation, but we do run the real risk of diminished empowerment for holy living. If we quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit, we're operating on fewer cylinders than we were supposed to. This is a very real thing for New Testament Christians, but you're not going to lose the Spirit or lose your salvation. What about Saul? I don't know, but the spirit is gone from him, and therefore his empowerment to do the job is gone. There's an analog for us. If we quench or grieve the spirit, our empowerment for the roles that God has called us to, our empowerment is way, way, way diminished. And so this is something, this quenching and grieving the spirit is a real thing, and we should live in a wonderful holy fear <laughs> of this. I don't mean, you know what I mean by holy fear, right? Not, don't be afraid, but a, a holy fear, sober-minded. This can happen, and we don't want that to happen. So that's what, for Christians today. So that's just a little, we're going to take a little rabbit trail on the Spirit of God, because there's always questions that come up with, what happens if God takes his Spirit from me? He's not going to do that. It's different. This is the New Testament. Um, let's see, I was going to say something else about the Holy Spirit. Ah, maybe I'll think of it and throw it in somewhere. So God takes his spirit from Paul for Christians today. We've talked about that. Now, 
chapter 17, as we start into chapter 17, we've just done 16, chapter 17 takes place here, okay? And you can see, here's where the battle happens. Thank you, honey, for the great arrow. That's a great, right there, right at the end of that arrow. Now, this is the Valley of Elah. It runs kind of, if you'll think, east-west, okay? Here's Gath and Ekron. These are Philistine towns. Uh, over here, we're, um, let's see, we've got, uh, you know, Jerusalem is going to be kind of, kind of right there, Bethlehem, and they're going to march over here. So the Israel, Israel's army, whether they're stationed here or here or all over the place, they're going to go meet up over here. The Philistines are going to come over here. And when you go to Israel, two plugs for Israel, one by Cody, one by me today, when you go to Israel, you will stand in this valley and you'll look up and it's not very high, and it's not very high on this side, but this is where the Philistine army would have been, and this is where the Israelite army would have been. And Goliath, jung, 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 he marches out here and, and yells <laughs> at the Israelites. And Israel could have sent a champion to fight him, and then it's, you know, if, if our guy beats your guy, then you're our slaves. And if our guy beats your guy, then you're our slaves. And so the, the wars would have been, I mean, you, you're picking a champion. So their champion is fearsome. Fearsome, this guy. I would not want to meet this guy. So that's where all of this stuff is set. And I think that's on page... Page four, page five in your uh, handout. You can refer back to that map if you'd like. And it's on page four or five. Okay, Saul has begun well, but fears and worries set in. And though seeing the giant, he avoids him. Chapter 17, the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camp between Sukkah and Judah and Azekah and Ephes-Damim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Okay, I'm not quite six foot tall. Take a yardstick and put it on top of my head. That's how tall this guy was. I mean, any uh, pro football or basketball team would love to have this guy. He's a one-man wrecking crew. Nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor. I don't know how he walked. And he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. Imagine the size of this guy's hands to throw this thing. You got a bronze javelin. I mean, I don't know what I'd do with it. If I took two hands, it'd, it'd probably just fall off my shoulder and clunk. It just fall right in the ground. This guy can hurl this thing. Uh, it's tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. 
Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Yeah, they were. Now David. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse. An Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at the time, and he had eight sons. Let me walk through the sons. David's youngest son uh, was David. Uh, his three older brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse says to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. And give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Eh, not a lot of fighting going on. A little bit of yelling, but not much fighting. So David left the sheep with another shepherd, and he sets out as Jesse directed him. He gets there, he hands the stuff out. As he was talking with them, verse 23, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked, he comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. So David seems to ask this question, and then he finishes with this comment. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? You're already liking David. And these men gave David the same reply. Yes, that's a reward for killing him. But when David's older brother, oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. I don't know why. He got told no. You know, what are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> David says. Okay, then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. David, now, how old is David? Don't know exactly. Um, he might be 16, he might be 20. He's probably in that domain. He could be a little bit older, but he's right, about then, right around that uh, age. So he's, so he's meeting with Saul. Now remember, uh, they defeat David... And the Israelites become the slaves of the Philistines. The risk in this thing is way high. And here's, let's, let's say he's 20. He comes up, right? Saul's talking to him. You're a child. <laughs> what do you mean, don't worry? He says, David says, don't worry about this Philistine, David told, told Saul. I'll go fight him. <laughs> Let me think about that. <laughs> I'll get back to you. I got a whole army here, and none, none of these men will go fight Goliath. You are going to go fight Goliath? We're going to entrust our future, our fate, into your hands? Hmm. <laughs> if you're Saul, hmm. Not so sure this is a good idea. Why? Why would Saul be thinking that? Because Saul walks by sight and not by faith. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David said, hey, this is not my first Goliath. Uh, he says, I've beaten the lion and the bear. Uh, and he says, I'll do the same thing to this pagan Philistine. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, 
go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul says, you're going to need this, and gives him his armor. And David says, uh, not so much. <laughs> I can't really get around in your armor. So, uh, so David takes him off. He picks up five smooth stones from the stream. He puts them in his shepherd bag. And then armed only with his shepherd staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistines. All right. So, <laughs> so here's, here's Goliath. Let's just say he's kind of right there under the A or the H. And up here, so David, dun, 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 he comes walking down, right? He's, he's coming down here to fight Goliath. God, this is just amazing. David is amazing. So he, said, so he picks up five smooth stones. He goes across. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog? He roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, this guy is amazing. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Man. So as Goliath moves closer to attack, David runs at him, reaches into his shepherd's bag, gets a stone, hits him right in the forehead. The stone goes in. Uh, Goliath stumbles and falls face down to the ground. Uh, he doesn't have a sword, so he, he runs. So Goliath's laying on the ground. The armor bearer has obviously fled. <laughs> and so he goes over and he grabs Goliath's sword, which must have been huge. He pulls this sword out <laughs> and cuts off Goliath's head. If you're Israel, you're going, what? This is crazy. If you're Saul, not such a good day. It's clear you're out, and this guy is in. Okay. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. The men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. Thanks, remember that. Okay, so they're chasing them in, this, in the blue. All the way from here, they're chasing them all the way back to their territory. Uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, the bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road. Um, they're plundering them. Saul watches David go out to the fight. To fight the Philistine, he asks Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. Well, find out! <laughs> Now, part of the reason he probably wanted to find out was, uh-oh, but the other part could be for taxation, meaning this person's family is exempt from taxes, and so he's going to have to find out, uh, great, who gets out of taxes? So it's probably both. Um, well, find out who he is. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul <laughs> with the Philistine's head still in his hand. I got my Samsonite. <laughs> Oh, you like that one, do you? Okay. I got my Samsonite. It's a kind of suitcase for those of you who are too young to know. <sighs> if you have to explain a joke, it does lose something, but that was a good one. Okay. Uh, and he says, tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Okay. Whew. What a great story. You probably heard two-thirds of this in Sunday school. You probably didn't hear the old you know, cut the head off and, <laughs> like my luggage? <laughs> you, know, you probably didn't hear about that part, which is fine. 
So Goliath blasphemes Israel for 40 days. Saul paces the sidelines in fear. The size and ferocity of the giant seem to have paralyzed him. They became bigger than his God. So Saul did nothing. His strategy was avoidance. Maybe if I keep walking around back up here, maybe they'll leave. Maybe the giant will go away. I don't know, but I know I'm not going down there. <laughs> That's all Saul knows. I'm not going down there. What's the king's job? To lead the charge and go down there. But instead, no, not so much. All proof that God had made the correct call. The people's king was Saul. Good-looking, lacked everything important. David, younger guy, a nobody, but he loved the Lord, and he was going to fight for God. Proof that God made the correct call in moving Saul out and bringing David in. How about David? Great. David is a faithful and obedient son. When we first meet David, he's serving his father by tending the flock, and perhaps there were only a few. Maybe he really was entrusted with just a few. I don't know. But David is faithful over what's been put before him. He's a humble servant. David's abilities were known by others, and though probably now anointed, he's probably by this stage anointed, and therefore the Spirit of God has come on him. Um, he's serving humbly, and even, if you will, beneath himself. His dad says, hey, take this grain and cheese and run up there and do those things. Okay. Does it, you know, I just got anointed. Does that mean anything to anybody? I just kind of got anointed. By Samuel? Maybe you've heard of him. Remember anointing? He serves without complaint and very humbly. He's a victorious warrior. He was indignant that Goliath was in their land. And in contrast to Saul, David saw only the size of his God, not the size of the giant. And so in faith, he ran at Goliath, attacked him, and killed him, gaining a great victory for himself and for Israel. And what a great picture of our greater David, the Lord Jesus, who ran at the enemy of enemies and defeated him. So what about us? Great story. So much to learn. Here's the one thing I want you to take away tonight. It's appropriate for us to go through our giants rather I should say to avoid them, rather than to avoid them. Our Lord Jesus did it. Israel's greatest king, David, did it. Christian, in Pilgrim's Progress, did it. So we need to do it. It's appropriate for us to go through our giants rather than to avoid them. What are those giants living in man's soul? I'm sure I don't know what yours are. I have somewhat of an idea of what mine are. What is a giant in this sense, generally putting more trust in myself rather than trusting God? What's that giant's name? Self-reliance. And his wife's name is security. That giant lives in my land of man's soul. What happens if something starts to go south? What's my first thought? Remember Jacob? He planned first and prayed second. That's me. I plan first. Oh, gosh, I better ask God. Maybe he has a thought. We haven't talked about this book in a while. I brought my copy with me. Respectable Sins, 
you could pick out any number of giants in this book. Um, I've just got time to, to give you the titles. How about discontentment? No hand raising. Anybody discontent tonight with anything going on in your life? That could be a giant for you. How about selfishness? Impatience or irritability? Mm. How about anger? Here's another good one. Judgmentalism. I don't know anyone who has that. And whoever it is, I don't like them. I love this. He, he says, the person who says Jesus wouldn't drive an SUV is judgmental. Not because Jesus would drive an SUV, that's not the point, but because the person has made a dogmatic and judgmental statement based purely on personal opinion. Maybe you have one or two of these giants running around in the land of your mansoul. There's more. I didn't cover them all. Uh, you should get this book and take a look through it. Um, you know, there's a, a giant of standing up for my faith in public to be known as a Christian wherever I am, regardless of the cost. These days, that cost has grown. The giant of telling others about my faith in Jesus and their need for him. Well, why is that a giant? Well, because it's not probably that as much as it is people-pleasing. And what if I say something that offends them? Yeah, yeah, what if? What if? Are you telling them the truth? Yes. Fear and his brother insecurity about how I look, how I act, what happens when. Um, yeah, the, the giant of comfort and ease that I put in there. I love that giant. Um, how about the giant of my past and how it disqualifies me from serving the Lord in the present? How about this one? The giant of purposelessness or uselessness and feeling sorry for myself. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm gonna eat some worms. There's people who have this giant in the land of their mansoul. particularly uselessness. I'm useless. And that happens to us at various stages of our life. They all seem to operate on the retribution principle, though. Things aren't great now, but they could be worse if I go after this giant. So I'd better just leave well enough alone and pace the sidelines like Saul being a fretful avoider. I know the giant is there. I know the giant is taunting me. And I know I've let the giant become bigger than my God. That if I step into him, things could get worse. So I'm just going to pace the sidelines. A giant... It's a thing that's, uh, things that seem as if they will kill you or take away the life you once had if you cross them. So how do we attack them? 
We attack them with the smooth stone of prayer offered in faith. Notice that faith believes God not only exists, but rewards those who earnestly, consistently, and dependently seek him. Hebrews 11.6. Got any smooth stones in your shepherd's pouch? Smooth stones of prayer? And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You're familiar with Matthew and our Lord when the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to test him for 40 days. And the first time the devil comes and says to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Notice how specific and targeted Jesus' responses were. They were all according to the word of God. You say, but maybe, maybe the giant is right. Why did we go through Romans 5 through 8 and take a lot of weeks to walk through our identity? And if you said, I agree with, I agree with you. Romans 5 through 8, this is my identity. Then see off. Think about it. Reflect on it. This is who you are now. And you've been given this sort of the spirit to use against these giants. So you've got a smooth stone of prayer and you've got the sword of the spirit. The question tonight, if you were completely honest, which character better describes you? Saul, the fretful avoider, who sees the giant in his life but is avoiding him and has let the size of the giant overwhelm the size of his God. Or are you more like David, the faithful warrior? Hasn't let the size of the giant become larger than the size of his God and is running at and attacking the giant even now. Just like Christian, Apollyon is straddling the road that Christian has to walk. That's what these giants do. They keep us from walking forward and we're either paralyzed and we stop or we try to go around them or we go backwards or we just sit down. Instead of getting our five smooth stones and the sword of the spirit and going at them just like Christian did against Apollyon. Many times I'm more like Saul, the fretful avoider, than David, the faithful warrior. And I pray the Lord will continue to work in me and in you, that we can become more like the faithful warrior than like the fretful avoider. For next week, read 1 Samuel 18 through 21, and we will have some more lessons from the life of David and Saul. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. It is rich. It is powerful. It is, um, gosh, it's a great teacher. Uh, we see ourselves in it in so many different ways. Uh, thank you for seeing more in us than we see in ourselves. Thank you for 
the fact that there is more in us than we think there is uh, because of your indwelling spirit. Thank you. We love you. We don't deserve what you've done for us, but we cherish it, and we want to walk uh, more closely uh, with our Old Testament king, King David, but more with our New Testament and eternal king, the Lord Jesus. Would you make us more like him even this week? And we ask you for that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a week.